and gentlemen, welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast with your host, Isabel Ross. As a personal trainer, accredited endurance coach, and now podcast host, Isabel is bringing you the best advice, tips, and tricks for health and athletics. Two Australian trail championships, a 24-hour track race, six-foot track marathon, and has represented Australia three times at the long-distance mountain running world championships. I mean, I guess you could say ain't no valley high or mountain low that she can't run, right? I mean, it's the other way around. Anyways, let's just say she knows a thing or two about running. Did I mention that Isabel has raced all over the world, including participating in the notorious Barkley Marathons? So, yeah, she knows her stuff. You'll be sure to get all your questions answered and maybe even a runner's high just by listening to the advice and good vibes of the Peak Endurance Podcast. Hey, it's Tom Date here, back with some more thoughts. Uh, this week I wanted to talk a little bit about forward momentum and training. Uh, a lot of, some people and a lot of people ask about training and finding motivation and being uh, stuck and wanting to get back on to training and back to running or um, whatever your training is and finding the motivation for it. And I wanted to just talk a bit about getting started and momentum. Um, and you've probably heard this before, but doing that first training session um, and so creating a plan uh, for the week or a month or a couple months and then doing that first run or first couple runs and um, how much the difference uh, and increase in your motivation starts just from doing those first couple runs and obviously obviously they're the hard ones but once you do them and you start to feel good about it how actually easy and routine uh, the training starts to become and you don't need the motivation to push um, and I just thought maybe I might speak a little bit about that uh, in this recording um, to re- and just let people know that yeah you, the first couple of training sessions that you plan um, are going to be hard to get started but really when you start getting the habit and you do it over and over again it really does get easy and you see people do these crazy training weeks 100 plus miles or whatever they are if you're talking running or just ones that just seem ridiculous and you think they're the most motivated most hardcore people and not to take anything away from them they are but the reason for them they can do it is because it's not as hard as you picture it in your head um, it's because over time they've gotten used to it and it's become a habit of theirs um to do that just become the normal um, and for them just like it would be for whoever's trying to find that motivation it's just, they just had to take that first step and over time built up um, and it became uh, I don't want to say effortless but nearly effortless and yeah so that's kind of just one of the talk about today just take that first step and trust in the process and that it will get easier if you're struggling to find that motivation and now we're just in, at least in Melbourne, just come out of lockdown. We can have a bit more certainty with our events and uh, people might be wanting to find that motivation to really kickstart their training again and I thought now might be a good time to talk about it. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Episode 134 is an interview with Patrick Wilson. 
Patrick is an author of the book, The Athlete's Gut, as well as being an assistant professor of exercise science and a registered dietitian. The book, The Athlete's Gut, combines the latest research on exercise and the gut with humorous descriptions and relatable real-life anecdotes. After reading this book, athletes will better understand the inner workings of their own gut and will be well-equipped to implement strategies to perform and feel better. Now, I recently read this fantastic book and I knew straight away I wanted you all to hear about it because it's so helpful. So, of course, I emailed Patrick and he was more than happy to come on the podcast and share his knowledge on all things that is the athlete's gut. I know you will learn a lot from this episode, but I also do really recommend buying the book too. The links are in the show notes. Now, if you find this podcast informative and helpful, why don't you make sure other athletes like yourself can find out about it by subscribing and leaving a review. The link is in the show notes too. Now, did you know that your mindset is a gateway to unlocking your fullest athletic and performance potential? You know, you've followed the training program to the letter, you're feeling the fittest, fastest and healthiest you've ever felt, and yet you're so strung out by nerves and negative self-talk that you fall apart on race day. Sound familiar? If so, one-on-one mindset coaching may be for you. I work with clients one-on-one to develop your emotions and mindset to support your goals. This one-on-one coaching is conducted over Zoom and recorded for your benefit and for you to keep. Designed to specifically suit your needs of developing a peak performance mindset and approach to running. I only work with a limited number of people at a time as it is a highly personalised service. So I recommend quickly getting onto my website peakendurancecoaching.com.au and filling out the form to get yourself on the waiting list. Enjoy the episode. So you like running, but you're feeling pain or irritation. You can't enjoy it like you once did. Or worse, your performance has taken a big hit. Now you're reminiscing on the good times where the wind blew past your ears. Nature looked lovely as you passed it. What are you waiting for? Go and visit the specialist at Health and High Performance. With the latest in technology and a wealth of experience, the team at Health and High Performance can help you with all your running injury and performance needs. Let's get you back to doing something you love with the results you're capable of. Head over to healthhp.com.au slash run, or you can find them on Instagram at Health High Performance. Health and High Performance are located in Mount Albert, Melbourne, but are available for telehealth appointments, not only Australia-wide, but also around the world. So contact them now on their website to find out more. Hi, Patrick, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. Hey, Isabel, thanks for inviting me on. It's good to be here. No worries. Now, before we get into the the full interview, can you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and and any athletic background that you have? Sure. I mean, I'm uh, I've been always kind of a run of the mill, slightly above average athlete. Uh, I mean, I've you know grew up doing distance running, cross country, track, basketball, kind of a multi sport athlete. Was usually always better than the average, but never elite at anything sort of situation. Uh, and that you know kind of was the basis for my interest ultimately in kind of pursuing exercise science and physiology and nutrition as my, you know, career path, uh, as I ultimately, you know, went on to, to do a master's and PhD in, in exercise physiology. Before that I had done an undergraduate degree in, in, uh, dietetics and I got my registered dietitian credential. 
So yeah, I, I'm, I've been an athlete my whole life. I still run today. I don't, I kind of stick to shorter distances. My body uh, isn't really, I think, built to handle the ultra distances. So um, I try and uh, stick with shorter stuff that's faster for me, uh, you know, not actually at any elite level. Um, but, you know, I've kind of been active my whole life and involved in sport in some way or another. Yes, sounds good. And, and obviously you've done a lot of study and that's taken up a lot of time too. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, kind of my research areas agendas kind of are a little bit all over the place. Uh, that's good or bad, depending on you who you ask. But uh, certainly part of it has been, you know, nutrition focused on, um, you know, gut function and performance. And then also kind of more recently, I've been doing some work on the psychological aspects of GI issues or GI function in sport and athletes. So that's kind of been a, a newer area for me that uh, has been pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, I recently read your book, um, The Athlete's Gut. It's hard to see when I've got a background, um, but I will put a picture of that in the, in the show notes. And it was recommended to me by one of my coaching clients. Now, I've read lots of nutrition books and, and that sort of thing, and they often have a little bit about stomach distress or, or or digestion for an athlete but this whole book is about that what made you decide to write a whole book on this topic yeah it's a good question I you know I'd started off thinking about writing a book on something kind of related to sport nutrition because that's you know uh, kind of my wheelhouse in terms of my expertise and I realized pretty quickly, I mean, there's many, many sports nutrition books. So putting out another one, just kind of thinking about what would be the uniqueness or novelty of that. And it was kind of hard to think of a way, I think, to do that and make it, you know, sort of fresh or new. And, you know, a, a good chunk of my research has been on at least either directly or somewhat indirectly the um, function of the gut as it relates to nutrition and exercise so I, I kind of started considering the idea of, of writing essentially a book on it, because especially for endurance athletes, it's a pretty major factor in terms of whether or not they're going to perform well or train well, is whether or not their gut is functioning appropriately. And, you know, it's kind of a little bit of an afterthought sometimes uh, until, you know, an athlete has like a major issue and then obviously comes to the forefront of their mind pretty obviously and quickly. And, and I think pretty much every endurance athlete. And many team sport athletes at some point or another have had, you know, one of those experiences where they had to, you know, run to the port of John or dive into the bushes or, you know, there's been high profile athletes who have had that happen, you know, on television. So we all have kind of either seen it or experienced ourselves. So I, you know, I started writing and then found that, yeah, I could actually probably get a whole book of material out of, out of uh, the topic in one way or another. So started kind of as a, a goal to do sport nutrition something and then expanded from there to just focus more specifically on the gut yeah and, and I have to say um I mean it's a topic that you would think is is would be you know a hard read but it, the way you wrote it was really quite amusing you've got a great sense of humor and um you, the funny little bits and it made it made it really good so I have to say I enjoyed that no. Well, I got to convince, convince my wife that I have a sense of humor first. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I tried to make it engaging because I know most of the uh, people reading it would be athletes or practitioners. And, and the publisher that I worked with also did a good job of kind of pushing me to do more of that and then also giving feedback. So I was pretty appreciative of, um, you know, their, their reviewing and help on that. Yeah, yeah. So for, for those listeners who are thinking about reading it, 
um, it, it's, it's entertaining as well as informative. So most of the people who listen to this podcast are runners. Um, now, you know, runners are notorious for, for, you know, stomach issues. Can you tell us why they seem to experience so much? Yeah, I think it's kind of a unique combination of, you know, the demands of the sports, uh, obviously. I mean, there's kind of the just the sheer runnings of, of vigorous type of activity. I mean, certainly you can jog or slog and, and go slow, but, you know, for any athlete who's kind of pushing the envelope or trying to get PRs or improve their times, I mean, it's a, a vigorous intensity. And anytime you have really vigorous exercise, you know, there's a competition going on in your body in terms of where's the blood going to go, you know, where's the oxygen going to go and the nutrients. And mm -hmm. during heavy exercise, the big priority is going to be the skeletal muscle. And then particularly in the heat, yeah. you know, the other priority is going to be the skin to help cool you off uh, for sweating purposes. And then also just get that warm blood to the surface of your body so that heat can be dissipated. So that, that's a big part of it is just the intensity of running itself. But then there's this other idea that it's also, you know, just the jarring nature of, you know, footfall after footfall impacting the ground. There's at least a, a you know, a theory or a hypothesis that that causes kind of micro damage uh, to the gut, especially if you're doing that repetitively over, you know, an hour, two, three hours. Uh, the combination of this intense uh, aerobic activity with the jarring nature of it. Um, maybe explains partly why certain symptoms are more prevalent in runners than you might experience in other types of activities. But you might experience other symptoms more frequently, for example, in, in cycling, like, you know, the kind of hunched over position, you might have more regurgitation, reflux issues, um, whereas with running, it might be more the lower abdominal stuff, cramping, or just to have to use the restroom. Um, it's just, it's also dependent kind of on the situation, you know, the length of the race, the environmental conditions, but yeah, I mean, I think for runners, it's the mixture of the intensity of the sport, uh, along with, you know, that kind of jarring nature of just repetitively hitting the ground over and over again, you know, thousands of times over the course of a race. And so if, if it's a really warm day when, when the race happens to be, what should we um, take as our main consideration to help us with digestion then? Yeah, I think number one, you know, trying to be as uh, acclimatized to that warm environment as you possibly can is the first consideration. And I mean, that seems obvious, but sometimes, especially like when you're coming around to the early part of summer or late spring, and maybe you haven't had an opportunity to, to do any heat training, and then it's a warm day, you know, more, more than usual on competition day or something like that, or even during a long training run, and you're just not accustomed to that. And, and maybe you have to uh, reduce the amount of solid food or yeah. fuel that you actually consume because you know that you're not going to be able to tolerate it in part because of, because of the heat. So number one is, you know, making sure you are acclimatizing to the environment that you expect to compete in. If you think you're going to be competing in a hot environment, then uh, working those heat training sessions into your you know, into your program somehow or another. I mean, obviously that's pretty easy in the summer, but certain times of year it's, you know, it's a larger challenge. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, so uh, it's hot in the summer, but for six or seven months out of the year, it's, you know, below 40 degrees Fahrenheit um, and then into the negative uh, digits for um, a good chunk of the year. So a little bit more challenging to do it uh, in that situation. Beyond that, though, I mean, I would say obviously hydration is going to make a difference. 
because if you're sweating uh, profusely, losing a lot of fluid, that can ultimately compromise your blood volume and your body's ability to kind of share those resources. Uh, and it, it does happen, you know, in a situation where someone tends to lose a fair amount of sweat and isn't replacing it, or they start off yeah. a training session or competition suboptimally hydrated. You know, maybe they have been training a lot and they just haven't been drinking enough and they're, they're starting off their competition or training session a little bit um, uh, less hydrated than they should be. But hydration is a tricky one for sure, because it's kind of a, this tightrope of you have to do enough to kind of try and stave off excessive dehydration. But if you push it too much, I mean, just drinking too much fluid can cause gut distress. Yes. So yeah, it's one where it's a, it's a tricky balance. And I try and convey that message in the book and that there's not really like a, just a, a simple, this is the amount that you are supposed to drink over this amount of time. It depends on the situation and especially the environmental conditions. Um, but yeah, a, a big take on point is to kind of practice what you think you're going to do in terms of hydration um, on a competition day and then ensuring that you're well hydrated starting off, you know, so that you're not already kind of behind um, as you get going. You know, it's, it's hard to make that up um, moving forward in certain races, especially of high intensity, if you're already starting off somewhat dehydrated. Does, does the cold provide different challenges? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, you, you tend to have uh, a lower, you know, sweat rate. Um, although, you know, in, in cold conditions or cooler conditions, athletes can sometimes work harder. And mm -hmm. it almost like, you know, it's maybe not as big of a difference as you would sometimes expect in terms of their sweat, weight, sweat rate. So sometimes it can be surprisingly high if they're really, you know, really a top end athlete and they're working hard, you can still have some pretty substantial uh, losses of sweat. And they may think that they have to drink less in a cold environment because yeah. they just think, well, it's cold or it's cool. I don't need to worry about it. And in some cases they, they can end up dehydrated because they're just not really thinking about it. And it's not present in their mind because of the environmental conditions. So I think it is a, a good thing to do is just, you know, go out for some of your longer training runs occasionally measure your weight before and afterwards also consider how much fluid you've consumed during because that's obviously going to mm. impact how much weight you lost but most of the weight that you lose over a couple of hours of exercise is, is due to fluid loss there's there's not a whole lot else unless you stop to use the restroom or something like that so your weight loss can be used as kind of a gauge in terms of your sweat rates and just knowing approximately how much you're sweating in different environments at least gives you a, a a starting point to say, you know, how much you might need to consume in these different environments, because it is going to vary depending on uh, the environment. And it's also going to depend on your pace. So keeping, you know, kind of a track of some of these things, you don't have to do it at every run, but doing it periodically in different environments at different paces gives you a sense of how much you're going to lose and how much you might want to target in terms of replacement. That, that's really good advice. And we spend so much time training that, you know, it seems um, it seems crazy not to do that because that's often the case for, for why we've had to DNF is because of gut issues. Yeah. And, um, and to not to not focus on it during training, it seems a bit of a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I think it's particularly challenging in ultra races because most of the research on hydration and, and you know, what's the most effective strategy? Do you use thirst or do you use some yeah. sort of structured plan? 
uh, most of the research on that is, you know, up to a couple of hours or a few hours, and there's not much that goes out beyond that for just logistical reasons. It's hard to do those experiments. So honestly, it's a little bit of an unknown, like what is the best hydration strategy for, um, for ultra competition? And it's, it's kind of an educated guess at this point. We don't have, you know, just super clear evidence that this approach is better than another approach. And I think anybody telling you otherwise is probably... Um, misrepresenting what the research is actually saying, what's actually available to us in terms yeah. of hydration research. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a educated guess and then using your own experience from training to figure out what works best for you. Yeah. Are there, are there any types of foods that are particularly worse for causing stomach distress? Yeah. I mean, during exercise, there's some, some things that are consistent. I mean, for some foods, it's just a person to person thing, but on average, if you look at a group of people in the study, things like uh, very hypertonic beverages, those would be highly concentrated beverages, mm -hmm. you know, like a juice or a soda or a, a beverage you've made at home on your own in the carbohydrate concentrations, maybe above 10%. Uh, now, if you're just sipping on that, it's probably not a big deal. But if you're gulping that down, then that's where it becomes more of a problem. So I don't want to give people the impression that if you're taking sips of a hypertonic beverage, it's going to be a major issue because it may it may really not be. It's kind of a, the totality of what you're putting in over the course of a race and how frequently and, and how much at any given time is also going to matter. But the reason why a hypertonic beverage might cause more issues if you consume it in large amounts is, you know, carbohydrate concentration, energy density is, is the main factor that tells your stomach how quickly to empty stuff. So if it's really concentrated with energy and carbohydrate, it'll, you know, there'll be a signal um, from your small intestine where there's kind of sensory tissue that'll tell your stomach, hey, let's kind of slow things down because this is a really big load of, of carb. Uh, we don't want it all dumping into the small intestine at once. So one way you could at least, you know, try and be better with uh, not having those symptoms from a hypertonic beverage is if you know, just train with it and get used to it, the body will adapt to some okay. degree. So that's a big point, I think, especially for ultra runners is, you know, you know, incorporating this stuff into your training. If you think you're going to use a hypertonic beverage um, and try and use that um, as a part of your feeling strategy, then you just need to incorporate that into training and see how it goes and expose your gut to it so that it has time to kind of adapt uh, and get used to it. Uh, it. Another interesting one is solid foods. I know for ultra runners, it's more common to rely on that for a variety of reasons, you know, portability, taste fatigue, all sorts mm. of reasons. It's interesting in that some, some studies suggest that solid bars and things like that might cause more bloating and fullness in those types of issues, maybe nausea than like a beverage or a carbohydrate gel. Um, the reason potentially being the size of a food particle plays a role in how quickly it empties the gut. So a gel and a beverage is already kind of like broken down yeah. a bar. It's like larger particles. And if you don't chew that bar, well, your stomach's going to kind of sense that your small intestine will sense that, and it'll slow the emptying of that bar potentially. So if you are going to use solid food, my one thing would just be, you know, make sure you chew it pretty well um, in terms of maybe minimizing some of the risk of, feeling more bloated or full or nauseated. If you're just kind of scarfing a bar down or solid food down, solid food down without really chewing it uh, and you're doing that repeatedly, that might be one of the things that could you know, lead to more nausea, bloating, fullness, that sort of thing. Um, 
you know, beyond that, it's, you know, lots of fat can do it. Um, mm. Lots of fiber. I mean, that's, it's, it is person to person. It's dependent on the exercise intensity, but those are some of the things that, you know, people might want to pay attention to in terms of um, the most common triggers. And I mean, once again, it comes down to, to practicing it in training and testing out different foods and that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's just, there's hundreds of products out there. So yeah. it's hard to, you know, a, a lot of times I get a question like, what do you think of this gel or what do you think of this beverage? And I can make some sort of uh, comment on it based on the ingredients, but people respond pretty differently to just to different products based on, yes. you know, the formulation, the tastes, you know, stuff that's hard to kind of really understand why they might not be responding to a particular product well. So yeah, even trying just the specific brands that you think you're going to use, you know, is a good idea because, you know, you don't really want to be experimenting too much um, on race day. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, I mean, and, and that's especially pertinent for people who might have intolerances or allergies is to yeah. practice with foods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, certainly allergies and tolerances. I, I think one of the more interesting nutritional kind of intolerances that's been talked about in, you know, gut issues with athletes has been uh, the concept of FODMAPs, which are these like yeah. short chain carbohydrates that get fermented in the gut um, to a higher degree in some people. Some people seem to be uh, more responsive to getting gut symptoms with eating FODMAPs. So uh, that's one where there's, you know, there's kind of some growing evidence and interest in using that as a, um, a strategy, a low FODMAP diet, maybe a couple of days before an event to reduce some of the symptoms that someone might otherwise experience if they're on a high FODMAP diet to begin with. Not everybody's eating a lot of FODMAPs. Yeah. Um, so like fructose, lactose are two really common ones, sugars that are considered FODMAPs that athletes tend to have higher intakes of. Uh, but then there's others uh, that you know are a little bit less well-recognized and it's hard to generalize like what foods are high in FODMAPs because they're actually in grains, mm. um, fruits, vegetables, and you have to actually look at a list of foods to say, okay, these are the ones that I maybe should avoid or, or at least reduce the intake of. So um, why is it that sometimes like uh, you'll have a, a nutrition plan and, and it works really well in a race and you think that's great, I'm, I'm going to do this next time, next race, and, and it's terrible. <laughs> I wish I had a good answer to that question. It's, you know, oh, I really all do. runners want the answer. <laughs> I know if, if someone had an answer to that question, I mean, they would be, um, yeah, they would have, uh, uh, you know, the winning strategy, obviously. They would. <laughs> I, I think it's it, the nature of the gut is it's, it's very variable. Um, symptoms can come and go, you know, the biggest predictor of, are you going to have issues as if you've had them in the past? So there does seem to be kind of a trend of people who tend to have these issues continue to have these issues, at least for, you know, a period of time. They might ultimately get a handle on them, but um, that's the most consistent thing in studies. If you kind of go to a race, assess what people are experiencing in terms of their gut symptoms. If you ask about what they've experienced the last three months in training, that's the best predictor of whether or not they're going to have problems on race day. Uh, but beyond that, I think the other issue is that there's just so many different symptoms you can kind of experience. You can have nausea, you can have fullness, you can have bloating, cramping, side stitching, urges to use the restroom. Um, it's and they're all kind of different things and and different stimuli and and things can trigger these symptoms differently. So maybe one race you are struggling with nausea, and then another race you're struggling with you know urges to have to use the restroom, and they're caused by two different things. 
So it, it is honestly pretty challenging sometimes to, with 100% certainty, come up with a plan that's going to completely eliminate, you know, the, the GI issues. And I think that's particularly true of ultra running. It's just the rates of GI distress are so high that I think it's probably unreasonable to think that you would completely yeah. be able to prevent, yeah, any issue. And so what should we do then um, if, if we're halfway through a race and, and we encounter um, stomach distress? What, what should be our tactic to try to help alleviate it? Yeah, that's a challenge. I mean, I think it, it comes down to what is the, the source or, what, or what's the type of symptom or type of issue you're experiencing. Uh, you know, if it's something like nausea, that's a challenge because, you know, if it's, if it's because of underfeeling or because of underhydrating, uh, at that point, if you're throwing up or you're nauseated, it's tough to kind of come back from that. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it tends to be you got to slow your pace. Maybe you need to rehydrate or get in fuel and, and really slow down until you start to feel better. You know, there are supplements and medications that are used. I mean, ginger is one that mm. anecdotally has evidence uh, and then does have evidence in other situations like motion sickness or pregnancy or chemotherapy. It, it, it is a decently effective anti-nausea supplement, but it hasn't been tested in, in the context of like an ultra race. So that's kind of just an educated guess. I, mean, and an experiment. I personally find it works really, really yeah. well. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's something you can, it's relatively low risk. So that's why yeah. I would say, I mean, you could try it. Um, if you anticipate you might end up experiencing nausea, you could take it more kind of preventatively uh, before a race or something like that. And maybe it would have some sort of effect. Um, uh, on Doncentron, Zofran is like the common medication that is kind of kept on hand at emergency um, tents and things like that by the medical directors of ultra races. So not good direct evidence that it is helpful, but I mean, it's, you know, th those are some of the uh, more medication supplement type route things you can do, at least specifically to nausea. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, that's the challenge, I think, is once they, once these symptoms start to appear, a lot of times it's you got to slow down. Um, you got to kind of think back what you've done for your fueling, your hydration and think, have you underdone it? Yeah. Or have you potentially overdone it? And both can be possibilities. I mean, both of those things can cause same symptoms, you know, or similar symptoms. So it, depending on what you think it is, have you underfueled? Have you overfueled? You'd have to adjust your strategy accordingly. I mean, maybe you do cut down on your carbohydrate intake because really you've just been pushing it too much. You know, you wanted to be aggressive. You wanted to try and PR or something like that, but you've just been taking on too much and your body's kind of at this point saying, you know, it's no more. So you might have to kind of taper your intake just to, to adjust for that. So yeah, it's hard to give like a, this is what you should do uh, because it's going to be dependent on the situation um, in terms of, you know, what's preceded those symptoms up to that point. I was once in an ultra race and, you know, at, at an aid station, they had chips and I had a big handful of chips and that caused for me the, the salt. Is that a common thing for like salt to cause those sorts of issues? Did it, it cause more issues for you? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one that's maybe underappreciated that sometimes, especially in ultra races, mm. you know, taking electrolytes with the idea that it might be helpful for cramping or nausea or things like that. Uh, for the most part, there's not good evidence that says it's highly effective for preventing those things. And there are some studies, especially um, where you give really high amounts of electrolytes, where there is a 
fraction of people who have a really bad response to that in terms of they get nausea, they might vomit. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of think, I mean, it does, it's like drinking a hypertonic beverage. I mean, yes. sodium and electrolytes do contribute to, you know, the, what we call the osmolality of a solution. It's like drinking salt water in a way. I mean, if you drink way too much, or excuse me, if you consume too much electrolytes, it can certainly trigger nausea, cramping, those sorts of issues. Um, it is understudied, to be honest, in terms of like, what's the amount that would yeah. tend to do that for people? We have a much better handle on like the carbohydrate amount that would tend to do that. But for sodium and other electrolytes, we don't have uh, quite a good of a, a real handle on what's the threshold, which you really would be more likely to start to experience those issues. But yeah, I would say it is a potential cause. Yeah. Yeah. Now, we're often, as, as ultra runners, we're often doing races where we're out for, you know, 20, 30 or more hours. <clears throat> How do we train for, for that length of race, um, you know, like train the food, especially when we start to get, you know, sick of certain foods, you know, mm -hmm. how do we train for that? I think, you know, you, you know, you obviously you're not going to be probably be doing 24 hour runs for training no. um, very commonly. So, <laughs> <hope> not. <laughs> so maybe going out and mixing, you know, for one long training run, you're using this particular fuel for another one. You're, you're going with something completely different so that you kind of know, you know, potentially what it's going to be like, or at least you're accustomed to, feeling with that food, even if it's not like your, you know, preferred fueling choice, you know, after an hour or two of exercise, maybe just using something different that you might anticipate you would use later on in a race just to get accustomed to it. And then I think there are some, you know, things in terms of uh, maybe kind of more nibbling on things or sipping on things as opposed to, you know, just throwing things down the pipe every 20 minutes, if possible. I mean, that can be challenging too to be kind of constantly eating, but later in a race, that might be helpful for reducing some of those symptoms you might experience like nausea, you know, fullness and bloating. Um, and that can be, you know, potentially helpful. Chewing your food really well. It seems like kind of a stupid thing, but no, you know, no, it's, uh, you know yeah. it's something that sometimes I think can just, it's not at the forefront of an athlete's mind. And especially if, again, it's like a solid food that is otherwise maybe hard for your stomach to, or it takes more time for your stomach to break down, do some of that extra work for your stomach. You know, yeah. your stomach already has enough problems to deal with in terms of uh, it doesn't have as much blood flow as it probably wants. It's not functioning at a, its normal level. So trying to make it as easy as possible for your stomach to handle what you're going to be putting into it late in a race. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge. I mean, obviously, you know, you're out there for in some cases, 24 hours, multiple days for some races. And it's, you know, how do you train for that? I mean, it's, it's, it's really challenging. Um, yeah. And I think part of the reason, um, you know, ultra runners get more successful over time is that they just get more experience with that stuff. Yes. And it's, you know, it's not like a marathon or a half marathon where you can train for this stuff in your training for a lot of ultra stuff. It's, you know, the races are the training in a way for future races. Yes. So um, yeah, just also realizing as you get more experience, you'll hopefully get better at some of this stuff. What about, say, for instance, multi-day races where, you know, you might be doing shorter distances, but you've got to back it up day after day after day. What, what should we be focusing on with nutrition for that? You know, I think it's, it's easier to do a wider array of foods that are palatable for you. And, and things that come into mind would be more, you know, what's portable, what's palatable, you know, what's going to actually give you fuel, though. You know, you don't want to necessarily be... Um, 
you know, uh, you know, the, a normal diet, you know, you're, you're, you're focusing on things in terms of its healthful properties, you know, outside of competition. Uh, but when it comes to a multi-day type race situation, it comes down to the logistical things in terms of what you can carry with you, you can bring yeah. with you, uh, and what is going to be, you know, uh, palatable after two or three days. So that's one where I think those considerations tend to override others. And, you know, GI issues in multi-day events don't tend to be quite as common as like a single stage race where it's, you know, 12 to 24 hours because you do tend to have some of those rest periods built in and, you know, the intensity isn't quite as high in terms of sustained intensity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I would say that you don't necessarily have to worry as much about those things, but if you do tend to have problems with GI distress in those multi-day events, um, you know, at that point, you, you got to kind of trying to think about, is it actually due to the food that I'm eating or is there something else going on that is, you know, contributing? Is it I'm under drinking, yeah. right, for example? Um, or is there other, some other source of uh, the issue that, you know, I haven't really identified yet? Um, you know, you can always, if, if you feel like you're having problems with the food you're eating, you could certainly reduce, you know, foods with lots of fiber or foods with, you know, lots of fat or something like that. But some people do better on those foods in multi-day events. So, um, yeah, that's another one where, again, it's, it's kind of experience-based and it's hard to give, you know, uh, evidence-based recommendations because there just aren't any controlled studies. Um, feeding people or giving them different nutritional um, interventions or supplements uh, in those types of events. I mean, it's all just kind of observational and, and anecdotal for the most part. It, ultra running is really tough uh, to yeah. do good research and, and it's, it's makes, I think, kind of an interesting sport that uh, it's a lot of experimentation and individual experience that informs what people end up doing. Yeah, yeah. Is there, is there a place for um, fat or protein foods when doing such long events? Yeah, I think definitely, especially multi-day events. I mean, you got to remember, you're putting your body under tremendous stress over two or three days in some cases. And, you know, your body, your muscles are experiencing damage and you're going to want a good amount of protein. Yeah. Um, you know, fat is one that's interesting in that in a single stage race, you know, on a given day, if you ingest fat right before or during an event, there's really not enough time for probably most of that fat to be digested and, and uh, assimilated in the way that the body handles dietary fat to be used as, as a significant source of fuel. Whereas like carbohydrate, when you ingest it, uh, it's more readily, more quickly used as a source of fuel post-ingestion. Yeah. So uh, I would say in terms of multi-day racing, um, you know, you certainly want a significant amount of protein, you know, enough to, you know, hopefully minimize some of the uh, you know, the, the damaging processes that go on and uh, help you be able to kind of recover for those few days and be able to perform. In terms of dietary fat, that's kind of more probably a personal decision and preference, whether you feel like those foods are more palatable for you or if you can tolerate them, fine. I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's necessarily uh, anything wrong with relying on more dietary fat uh, for multi-day events, especially. There's some interesting case studies that have done like multi-day events or really, really prolonged stuff. And they almost, I don't want to say exclusively relied on fat, but it was heavy, heavy in their intake. And, and, you know, some athletes do very well with that. So it really becomes kind of a personal preference thing. I think when you're looking at multi-day events, and it's but don't neglect protein. Off. 
Yeah, and, and it's certainly, fat is definitely a concentrated source of calories, I guess, as well. Yeah, yeah, so like if you're, you know, obviously you're carrying your own food or you're bringing your own food, uh, that can be a very convenient way of getting in some of the calories that you need. Mm. Yeah, so that's definitely a, a good point. Did you learn anything that surprised you whilst you were writing this book? Yeah, good question. I'm trying to think. It's been a couple of years since uh, <laughs> I, I mean, the whole process of you write and then it goes through edits and then the publishing thing. And then it, yeah, so I'm trying to think if there was anything really that surprised me. I and mean, there's definitely stuff along the way that, um, you know, um, you learn. And I think one of the more interesting parts of writing the book was just kind of trying to find anecdotes and stories of athletes who, you know, had these types of experiences on their own and, and just incorporating that sort of stuff. Uh, into the book and realizing just how many high-level athletes have dealt with, mm. you know, with, with these issues. I mean, we, there's, you know, really high-profile examples that, you know, make the rounds on the internet or we see on YouTube or something like that, but um, there's lots of lots of athletes who struggle with it. So uh, I think I was maybe a little bit surprised in terms of just the sheer number and, and even though some of the most elite athletes you can think of that, mm you don't think are going to be maybe jittery or nervous before games or competitions, but they struggle with it um, similarly or more in some cases than, you know, your uh, sub-elite athlete. So that was also, I think, kind of a little bit surprising. So how does um, anxiety affect, you know, like pre-race nerves, how, how does that affect um, our, our tummy when we're trying to race? Yeah. You know, there's definitely a deep connection between the brain and the gut. Um, you know, it's it's uh, interesting in that the gut kind of functions to some extent on its own. It has this its own nervous system embedded in it so that like if you severed the connection um, from the spinal cord in the brain, you could still have actual movement of, of stuff through the gut because it's there's almost reflexive in a way. Like if you're pushing food through the gut, some of that is just automatic. But the connection to the, the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord, I mean, that kind of dials things up or down, mm. depending on what you're experiencing in your life at any given moment. So stress and anxiety can be one of those things that kind of dials up or down activity in the gut. Um, and that can be, you know, uh, good or bad, depending on depending on the situation. So when we tend to be stressed or anxious, we tend to see. Uh, things in the upper half of the gut, like the stomach, the esophagus, motility, or kind of the propulsion of food and things through that part of the gut tends to slow down, kind of get backed up. And then uh, in the lower half of the gut, particularly like the colon, the large intestine, stress and anxiety can have the opposite effect of kind of speeding things up or increasing mm -hmm. urges to have to use the bathroom. It's not always that way. Like some people don't have that same response, but that's kind of a you know, a, a generalization about how the stress and anxiety you experience might impact, you know, different parts of the gut. It's not all the same. And it's, it's definitely dependent on kind of the, you know, significance of the stress or the anxiety, mm -hmm. like how severe is it? You know, you can go from the extreme of being in war or something like that. You know, that's a, obviously more of a fearful situation to, you know, competition anxiety where it's, it's still pretty profound. I mean, like, performing in the Super Bowl or at the Olympics or something like mm. that. I mean, athletes chucking up what they ate four hours beforehand because they're so anxious. Um, to some, I mean, even doing a 5K, you know, they get pretty nervous or anxious. So it's it's how a person perceives it and how they uh, process the anxiety. You know, they, do they kind of think of it negatively or are they mm. 
making use of it? You know, is it, is it more of a positive thing for them, kind of a signal that their body's ready to go and they harness that energy? Or is it kind of more of a, a thing that they're struggling to deal with? And, and that can maybe influence their gut a little bit more negatively than if they're able to kind of think about that anxiety in more of a positive way. So there's interesting, you know, anecdotes from history of uh, before, you know, the advent of ultrasound techniques and things like that, or being able to actually look inside the gut. You know, there's a story of a Canadian fur trader uh, right. who was shot in the stomach and it never healed. So he had this fistula that you could see inside his stomach. And there was a physician who treated him who ultimately kind of did a bunch of experiments on him. I mean, not an ethical thing <laughs> uh, nowadays. The guy lived as an indentured servant in this physician's home for a number of years. And that was kind of the arrangement. Uh, but he would do these little experiments and, and see what it would do to the activity of the stomach. He could, you know, put things into the stomach and pull it out. Could sample the, you know, the stomach juices and things like that. He would comment on how his mood would be related to his, his uh, stomach activity and appearance. So, you know, early days, even there was a basic understanding that a person's mood could impact, you know, the function of the, the gut. Um, and we've, you know, come a long way since then. Um, but still, there's a lot to be, you know, kind of understood or known about it, specifically in sports. Hmm. How does this work? What's the best way of dealing with it, I think, is kind of where we want to go next in terms of if an athlete does have a fair amount of competition anxiety and has GI issues as a result of that, what do we do about it? You know, is there, are there strategies that actually are effective? Um, and that's kind of where we, we need to go next, at least in terms of the, you know, the research. But um, at least then athletes know that it's, it's not just um, them, that, that it is a phenomenon that, that occurs. Yeah, we've, uh, I've done a few studies where we'll ask people, you know, before a race or something like that, and then um, track their GI symptoms. And uh, one was uh, interesting in that, you know, anxiety in general was associated with higher levels of GI issues, particularly like nausea. Um, but especially on the morning of a race, if you fa felt anxious on the morning of a race, it was even more um, significantly associated with the occurrence of GI symptoms during the race itself. So, um, yeah, that can be an underappreciated thing. I mean, a lot of times the gut, it's the, you know, the focus is nutrition and hydration and supplements and all those sorts of things. And, um, anxiety and, and stress for a segment of athletes. It's not everybody, maybe 20% of athletes, 30% of athletes, it may play a significant role in, in um, uh, GI issues that they experience. Yeah, yeah. So something to be mindful of anyway. Now, is there anything um, I haven't asked you that you think maybe listeners would like to know or need to know? <clears throat> uh, you know, I think there's also, you know, the topic of like supplementation is, is mm. oftentimes something that comes up with GI issues and whether or not it's a good idea to supplement with things. I mean, we talked a little bit about ginger, um, there's some other supplements that are, you know, promoted as maybe being helpful for the gut, like glutamine, okay. uh, bovine colostrum is another one. Yeah, uh, what I would say about most of those supplements is there's some evidence that they do, they may reduce some of the uh, damage or what we call kind of gut leakiness. So you can measure somebody's blood and look at the appearance of things like, um, endotoxins and, and kind of evidence of kind of bacterial translocation into the blood uh, would suggest that your gut is kind of leaky. Yep. And exercise tends to make the gut kind of leaky, especially exercise of a prolonged duration in a hot environment. 
And some of those supplements seem to help reduce the gut leakiness. Uh, the question is, does that actually like manifest as something meaningful in terms of symptoms? And, and at this point, none of the studies have really shown that it's, it's ultimately translated to fewer symptoms. So um, that's kind of my take on a lot of these supplements that are supposed to help, you know, you know, they'll say they like help the gut barrier or they reduce gut leakiness. Um, that might be true. Uh, but at this point, it's hard to say whether it actually adds up to you're going to feel better, actually. Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, we just don't really have uh, uh, good evidence for those specific outcomes. And would, would they be something that you would take like during an event if, if you were going to be trying it? Most of the studies on those, like two specifically, uh, glutamine and then bovine colostrum, it's beforehand, like you would yeah. either take it for a few days beforehand, a couple of weeks beforehand. That's the common with bovine colostrum. That's the most common way it's been done is you know, maybe a couple of weeks. And then glutamine, it's one where actually sometimes I'll just give it, you know, 60 minutes or 90 minutes before. Right. Yeah. And then uh, it's kind of circulating in the blood by the time exercise starts. Um, and the idea is that it's glutamine is, is actually used by intestinal cells as a source of energy. So part of the theory is that it's helped kind of sustain uh, those intestinal cells that might be having a limited supply of other, you know, fuel like glucose. Mm. All right. So, so your main, your main tip though, for people is to um, practice. Yeah, I mean, I think practice, but then also um, if you are experiencing symptoms, you know, start to write down what are those symptoms and, and just get a record of, is it nausea? Is it, you know, fullness, bloating, cramping, urges to use the restroom to get a sense of what are the actual problems you're experiencing? Because some of the solutions that you might take to solving those problems are going to differ depending on what the predominant symptom might be. Um, so I think maybe also just starting to get a maybe a more systematic approach to documenting when you're experiencing symptoms, uh, what was going on, what preceded it. Can you think of any things that may be contributing, whether it be anxiety, mm. um, uh, uh, could be your nutritional choices, potentially a lack of sleep. Chronic mm. sleep dysfunction has also been associated with uh, GI issues. So, yeah, I, th I think just trying to get a better handle on what might be the potential causes in a record of how often you're experiencing thing, uh, these things. So um, could, I think could, our food, a, could our food the day before even affect us? Yeah, in theory. I mean, especially if you're, you know, like the FODMAP example or the fiber mm. example would be if you had a diet that was really heavy in those um, substances you know, it takes a while for those things to transverse your entire intestinal tract. I mean, for some people, it's pretty quick. It might happen in 12 hours. For others, it might take two days. Mm. Uh, interestingly, women uh, in total gastrointestinal transit time tends to be a little bit slower. Okay. So, you know, in theory, maybe they could be more susceptible to experiencing some GI symptoms, delayed GI symptoms if, you know, they ate something 24 hours beforehand uh, as compared to to men. I mean, that's speculative, but yeah. yeah, I mean, something you eat a day or two beforehand can in some cases ultimately cause some issues. It would probably tend to be more lower GI issues, like, you know, lower yeah. abdominal bloating or cramping or, or just to use the restroom. It probably wouldn't manifest as much as something like, you know, nausea or reflux, where that's going to be more of the upper half of the gut. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you feel like you're commonly having some of those issues during events, I mean, you could trial, you know, a low fiber, low FODMAP diet for just a couple of days before the event. 
Uh, you don't probably want to eat that way all the time because those actually serve as fuel for the bacteria in your gut. And, you know, a little bit worried about going on a low FODMAP or fiber diet in terms of its health effects in the long term, but doing it for a day or two isn't going to, you know, it shouldn't have any lasting impact on your gut health. Yeah, sounds good. All right, now, if people want to get your book, where's, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, of course, they can go to, you know, the typical stuff on the internet, like Amazon, um, yes. velopress.com also sells it, uh, theathletesgut.com. I do have a, a bookstore there that they can buy it from if they want to, you know, yeah. uh, support the author more directly. Um, yeah, any of those would be fine if they're interested in the book. Uh, of course, you can get it from your library, maybe. I don't know how... <laughs> I don't know how many libraries actually carry this. So I don't know if that's a viable <laughs> option for most people, but. Uh, well, I, I don't know. Um, I personally like, to, like for, for me with this book, I've written in it and those sorts of things, which is probably frowned upon with the, with the library book. So <laughs> <laughs> probably best to just buy it yourself, I reckon. I think uh, athletes will want to refer to it frequently. Yeah, anyway. I'd be fine with that. That's fine. Yeah. So um, I'll put those links on the, on the um, show notes. Um, if people want to follow you on socials, can they do that? <laughs> yeah, I primarily use Twitter as kind of my professional social media yeah. um, site. So uh, at sportsrd underscore PhD uh, is my uh, Twitter handle. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes too. Well, thank you so much for coming on today um, to talk with us about, about, you know, the athlete's gut. Um, it's, it's always something runners are very interested in. So we really appreciate your time. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, Isabel. It's been fun. No worries. Thank you. Yeah. Don't you just love hearing about nutrition and everything to do with uh, gastric distress and what we can do to avoid it? I know I always find it super helpful. Now, this chat merely gave you an insight into this informative and engaging book. There is even more great info to be read. Grab a copy and I'm sure it will really benefit your running. Don't forget to also check out the YouTube video of the podcast. Now, have you got an interesting running story or a book that you think might be interesting to interview the author? Let me know and I can organise an interview either of yourself or of the author. Now, if you got value from this episode, which I'm sure you did, I would love it if you could share it with a friend, either on social media or directly. If you do share it on socials, though, don't forget to tag me so I can thank you. Have a great week of running and training and have fun out there on the roads and trails. Till next time.